Hey everyone, welcome to Unrefined Women. I am your co-host Agnes. And I'm the other co-host Margaret. This podcast is an ongoing dialogue between two sisters on the topics of spirituality, religious trauma, mental health, family dynamics, and feminism. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to our podcast on all the different platforms and follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Unrefined Women Podcast. In this week's episode, we have our favorite, favorite guest in the whole world, our cousin, Jessica. We've actually had Jessica on our podcast, I think, what, twice in the past now? I think this is our third time having her on, so... It's always a good time. And today we're talking about the waves of feminism. So the waves of feminism, if you don't know what it is, waves of feminism looks at different periods in modern Western civilization that were aimed at elevating women's rights. So we're going to dig into the different waves and talk about what the goals were for each wave and which wave we're in right now. We also went into some of our own personal experiences with feminism in general, and then we also touch base on the healthcare policies in America and feminism in politics. And finally, guys, if you really want to know the tea or no, the coffee, please stay tuned to the end of the episode where Agnes shares about how she recently drank bird poop. (laughs) Don't say it like that. (laughs) All right. Y'all got to listen to the end and then you'll know. Okay, so today we're going to talk about waves of feminism. Do you both know what that is? No, please tell us. Oh, you don't know what waves of feminism is. Okay, so waves of feminism, it's basically like a term that means or talks about the periods of modern Western history that were aimed at elevating women's rights. So we have feminism, but throughout like Western history, and I'm really like seeing like intentionally saying Western, like Western history, and especially like during like the, the industri- like since the industrial revolution, because, you know, we've been a species on this planet for a very, very, very long time. So I'm sure there's been other points in history where there might've been feminist movements or where uh, that were more matriarchal. So I'm, I'm really just kind of looking at the last couple hundred years here. And so this is recognizing how in different phases of Western society, we've had movements of feminism that were um, working towards a common goal, like a specific goal. And so it's looking at these different waves and how like each wave has had like a specific goal that women were working towards and then how that wave would then be the foundation for another wave that would come later on in history. So does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to start by looking at the first wave and then just to kind of like summarize. So there's typically, or there's like agreed that there's like three main waves of feminism that have existed since like the early 1800s. And it's just kind of like different people have different perspectives, but apparently we're in like a fourth wave right now. But some people say that we're just in a continuation of the third wave. So just, just FYI, and we'll get more into that. So first wave feminism started in the late 19th to early t- early 20th century. Any guesses on what their goal was during that time? The right to work and vote. Yeah, exactly. So that would be like the suffrage, like the women's suffrage movement kind of began in that time. 
And so that started actually in July of 1848, which I was really surprised. I feel like when I think of the women's suffrage movement, I think of like 1920s, which was when women got the right to vote. But this actually started almost 100 years prior to that. And so the beginning of the first wave of feminism happened uh, during the Seneca Falls Convention. So the Seneca Falls Convention, it was like this convention that was put together by two women named Elizabeth Cady uh, Stanton and Lucreta Mott. And how this all started was they were denied seating at the 1840 or 1840 World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. So it actually all started with anti-slavery movements and how women were not allowed to partake in those movements. And so that's kind of where it all began, which I think is kind of funny because as we get into later first wave feminism, it actually gets really racist. So it's interesting that it was first founded um, with or around fighting racism. So these two women were not allowed to sit at the 1840 World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. So they got a bunch of women all fired up and they had this convention where they all got together and basically like agreed on these are the goals that we want to work towards creating more equality for women in society. And so the first wave of feminism was really geared towards having basic legal rights for women. And of course, that makes us think about like the right to vote. So the suffrage movement, that was the right of women to vote in elections. It was the goal of the movement. Um, And so first they formed the American Equal Rights Association in 1866. And then from there, there were several other different organizations that kind of spawned after that. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, American Equal Rights Association that was found, founded in 1866, it actually ended up collapsing sometime after that. It's kind of controversial what happened, but Frederick Douglass, he was part of developing that organization. And during that time, they were trying to get the 15th Amendment passed, which was for black men to have the right to vote. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who I mentioned before, who couldn't sit at the anti-slavery convention, She felt that it was going to take away from some of the other uh, women's activism work that was happening. And so she actually disagreed with black men having the right to vote. And so that actually caused a split where you then had women that were against the uh, black men having the right to vote and who were very racist. And then you had the movements of feminism, which were, you know, trying to get black men the right to vote, but trying to also get women the right to vote. So things kind of got fractured at that point. And Stanton, she not was like not only disagreeing with black men having the right to vote, but she actually was going out and like publicly speaking like very racist stuff and like talking about, um, you know, talking uh, badly about male immigrants and about formerly enslaved men and saying that, you know, they couldn't read properly, so they shouldn't be allowed to vote and just like really fucked up shit. So that's kind of where things like really went badly for the feminist movement right out the gate. I think there's another point that's uh, good to bring up in this, too, that um, I've heard and researched a little bit about. The creator of Planned Parenthood actually um, was avidly racist and just really was just not a good person. And so a lot of times um, conservatives love to point that out and say, like, oh, well, Planned Parenthood was essentially created to kill minority children, was to eradicate that. And they, you know, very racist motives. Um, And that's why they 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 use that as an excuse as to say that Planned Parenthood shouldn't be here today. Right. And we know that Mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood Parenthood is critical to women's rights today and critical in our right to choose 
um, and value our own bodies and our own lives. Um, and it's no longer supported by that movement. But I think it is interesting to see throughout the waves of feminism how uh, our messages tend to get derailed and starts to become a war against another minority group when that's not the cause at all. Like that's not, in my opinion, what true feminism is. And when we look at, um, when you research critical race theory, you, at least when I did, like that's what I saw most loudly was that if you believe in women's rights and as a woman, if you want to have equal rights, you must also stand and acknowledge that there's others that don't even have the rights that you have as a woman. And that may, mainly falls on women of color. Absolutely. And I think that I think it's so important you mentioned that, Jessica, about like the history of Planned Parenthood, too, because I think when we look at things like feminism or really anything in history, things are not as black and white as we think. Like the first wave of feminism with the information we have now, we can look back and be like, wow, like they like a lot of the leaders of that movement were very, very racist. They were very pro segregation. They were using racist laws to advance like white feminism, essentially. And so I think it is important for us to acknowledge that and recognize that where things went wrong but at the same time we do have to also recognize and appreciate that if we didn't have that first wave of feminism we wouldn't be where we are today so it's kind of like both you know um so there was that there was that split within the feminist movement during that time and actually a lot of the white feminists actually went on to pander to southern democrat men and try to get them on board with women having the right to vote by saying hey if you can give women the right to vote then white women will be able to join up with white men and we will be able to um like work together basically like to advanced like white agendas and like further segregation so that just kind of that was interesting again how like the first wave of feminism came out of anti-slavery movements and then ended up becoming very racist so then th there was like different organizations that went on from there and then ultimately as we know you know there was the women's suffrage movement and they were finally able to get the right to vote but again that was primarily um allowed for white women to vote. And so that happened when President Woodrow Wilson, he announced his support for the suffrage movement leading to the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1919. Um, and so historians will largely view that as kind of the end of the first wave of feminism once we reach that goal. Is there anything that you two are kind of familiar with with that movement that you wanted to add to it at all? I'm curious to know what the second one is. This is like a history lesson. Oh. <laughs> We'll get to that one in a second. So just really quick to summarize, though, some of the pros of the first wave of feminism, it was laying the groundwork for fate, for future waves of feminism, as we just talked about, granted women the right to vote by helping pass the 19th Amendment and declared that the right of citizens in the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And then some of the not so pretty aspects of the first wave was that the movement was originally originally began when women were excluded from fighting against slavery. Women of color became excluded over time and the movement catered more to white middle class women. And then because of the racist laws that were preventing the black vote, black women were still excluded from the right to vote. It uh, actually reinforced segregation by excluding women of color. And it did not take an intersectional approach and propose, and it tried to propose like a one-size-fits-all solution for dealing with oppression. So second wave took place in the 1960s and 70s. 
Any guess on what that was focused on? Working rights. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> <laughs> Working rights and also abortion. That was another uh. big one. Yeah. So the second wave was in the 1960s and 70s. It focused on issues of equality and discrimination. So that uh, the second wave kind of began um, unfolding in the context of anti-war and civil rights movement. It was the catalyst for the second wave of, of feminism. It actually started when Betty Friedan released a book in 1963 called The Feminine Mystique. Have either of you ever heard of that book? I've heard of the author, not the book. Funny enough. Okay. I've never read the book. I've heard of it. It was like apparently a huge fucking deal back then. Like a lot of women had it. It was a huge, it was very controversial for the time. So I feel like I kind of want to read that book now. But anyway, it criticized the post-war belief that a woman's role was to marry and bear children. So really during this second wave, you see a lot of women um, kind of like wanting I guess sort of like taking on more masculine roles. And so the feminist movement kind of took off. It was focusing on public and private injustices such as rape, reproductive rights, domestic violence, and overlooking the casual systemic racism present in society. So, un- oh, go ahead, Jessica. I was just going to say, I can kind of uh, place my, I can't place myself in this time period, but if I were to imagine myself in this time period coming out of a post-war, right, and we were coming out, um, of a time period where a lot of the men in our country were being sent off to war and that meant that women were taking over these work roles in the factories, right? We're no longer just in teaching or nursing positions, which were primarily the jobs held by women, but now we were taking over the labor jobs, right? And so right. with that, I can see how ta- we, we were now taking women out of the household, right? Whether they wanted to or not, it wasn't an option. If you wanted to support your family while your husband was at war, you needed a way to get food and to get money which means that you went and you worked right so now these women that are used to being house bearers are having to enter the labor force but with none of the rights that men had in the labor force and none of the protection and security that that came with that yeah i think that's something that's also interesting with the second wave of feminism you know because it was more focused on like women not being discriminated at work or like helping women to be able to get into the workplace i think there was still a like a part of the second wave that was still kind of disconnected from the experiences of of all women you know again it was kind of white centered um in certain ways and so you have like black women as an example that had been working for a long time. Um, like, have you all seen, I'm sure you've seen the movie, the help. Yeah. You know, so like that's an example where you have like these white women that are stay at home mothers, but then you have black women who are, you know, that are taking care of the children that have been working for a long time. So I think that was kind of another area of second wave where it was sort of like, Oh, we're trying to get women the right to vote. And black women are over here. Like we've been fucking working this whole time. We're fucking tired of working. (laughs) We would like to go home. That would be nice actually. Um, In reading a book that I read recently, it was um, uh, regarding the data gap in women. It went to point out as well that um, in most labor jobs, the safety precautions um, that are built around that job, the size of the helmet, the size of the safety vest, the size of the bulletproof vest that cops wear, um, the seatbelt in your car, up until 
the early, early 2000s, like we're talking 2007, those things were tested on male dummies. It wasn't exactly. until the early 2000s that we even had female dummies in terms of weight, in terms of breast size, in terms of a pregnant dummy to test these safety features on. Um, so many injuries and many injustices just came from women working in a labor force that they weren't considered in when taking safety precautions. Uh, yeah, I think that's important to know. And then also like drugs. Drugs is another thing. Like historically, most drugs have been tested on men and not women. And so women yeah. tend to have more medical complications, um, uh, you know, side effects that were not that were that, you know, they didn't know about during the testing period because they weren't tested on women's bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a that's a huge data gap for women of color as well in the medical field. And just um Medically, you wouldn't think that something like the color of your skin would have an effect, but culturally and just through how humans have come to be, we do. They have, we have different resting heart rates. We have different um, blood pressure, resting blood pressure, um, and those are all things that are affected by medication. So when we talk about um, a person of color getting proper medical treatment for something, you know, have they had the chance to yet mm-hmm. still? Yeah. So another kind of another kind of saying that was really prominent during the second wave, and we've probably heard of this, is the personal is political. That was kind of like a good summary of what was going on during the second wave of feminism. And second wave feminists realized that like women's cultural and political inequalities were linked together. And they were working at these goals of social equality with sexuality and reproductive rights being central concerns to the liberation movement and with much of the movement's energy being focused on passing the Equal Rights Amendment. So are either of you familiar with the Equal Rights Amendment, actually? Nope. Okay. So I I, I got to be honest. I don't know too, too much about it. Um, I do know that I read about it in school, and it's basically like an amendment that they wanted to add into the constitution that like makes it very, very clear that women need to be paid the same as men. That like, I think it's a lot harder on discrimination, like kind of cracks down more on discrimination. So it is 2022 and actually the equal rights amendment has still not been passed. Yeah. And to add to something about this that I like get brought up all the time in my head of just why, when we apply for a job and ask us for our age our race and our gender what is the purpose of that like like do either of those things qualify me in the job of which i'm applying for and should they legally i mean i would think no i agree i mean especially today especially today most jobs i would say no yeah and in in all situations every single job should be providing uh the tools necessary for instance a a labor job that requires you to lift heavy weight right they'd make the argument oh well they should know whether you're a woman or a man because that would judge on your qualifications for that job but i strongly disagree there's a reason we already have labor laws in place that say a company can't hire a man only position or a man only construction company right you have Mm -hmm. to consider the applications of everyone and make it so that they can work that job um, as efficiently as possible Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just even when applying to colleges, you know what I mean? Like what like why does my my age, my gender or the color of my skin dictate my ability and my credentials to get into this school? Mm -hmm. I agree with that statement. Now, one thing just kind of like looking at it from another perspective, because I've wondered the same thing. I do wonder, though, um, 
if they, I mean, I'm sure they, we know that they do use that to discriminate. Um, but trying to look at it from another perspective too, I wonder if they do use it for gathering data so that we can have the statistics that we have now so that we can look at the data and be able to see where there's discrimination happening. So like, I wonder if there's that side of it. Um, I don't know. That's interesting. I, I was going to say, I was like, I was like, I might, I might, um, be okay with that if they were like oh we want to make sure more women go into management so it's important that we make sure we're you know we are considering as many female applicants for this management position as we are male applicants right but Mm -hmm. i i personally i work in tech and i don't see that happening like i don't see i see one female manager to every 10 male managers i -hmm. don't see equal um opportunity in and moving up in the chain and that's it's not the fact that there's less female tech workers there's just as many it's that they haven't had the same opportunities for as long as their male coworkers have to move up into those um, high management positions yeah do you also see in the stem in the stem field do you also see uh like a a big k or sorry oh my gosh big pay gap between men and women um to be honest i don't necessarily see it um so I, it has it has more to do with the the lack of time of which women have had in the tech field to move up in that position. And what I mean by that is when I look at upper management, you don't get into a management position unless another manager likes you, essentially. Like they have mm. to see that you have the skill set to be a manager and to manage those below you in a in a way that they approve of if they're going to work with you. Right. Like what manager A is not going to hire a manager B for another team that he doesn't think he's going to work well with, right? He's going to pick the person that he knows he works well with. And that tends to be another male because we we gravitate towards what we're comfortable with, right? And when someone is different than us, that gets uncomfortable. And that's just a fact of it. As I put it this way, I'm the only white person in my master's program. This is the first time in my life I have ever been in a situation where I'm actually a minority. And it brought me so much fucking sorry so much respect for people that have to deal have to be a minority every single day of their life because for the first time in my life I walked into a room where no one looked like me and I was utterly terrified for no reason you know what I mean like these people are all here to do the same thing I am but just the fact that no one in that room looked like me I was like oh my gosh you know this is what people other people of minority status like deal with every single day but that goes to show like you go towards what you're comfortable with. And so I can understand why more women haven't moved up in management. And that's where the pay gap on average lies is that these women are staying at their non-management positions because they're not being moved up into the management positions. So on average, they make less than if you take all the males at my company and you average their pay and you take all the women at my company and you average their pay, the women are going to fall less than the man. Yeah, because they have like, they're not in higher paid positions. They're not promoted as easily. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I do see like my job in particular taking strides to change that. Um, and they do acknowledge it, which I think makes such a big difference um, as a woman, like working for that company, knowing that they, they've acknowledged it and they're working towards changing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like too, when I think about like the two, like, well, we'll get to this in a little bit too, but like the 2010s, especially, I feel like that part of feminism was so focused on like 
you know, the girl boss, which Agnes, you and I have talked about the girl boss. I don't like the girl boss movement very much personally, but um, I have my, my nitpicks about it, but it's like, but I also understand it was almost like the way I, this is just my opinion. So this is not like based in facts or anything, but my perspective, perspective of it, it was almost like men having to almost try to men essentially just to try to get ahead and I think of that as almost like a survival tactic like we're trying all these different ways as women to have equality and so it's almost like you have to develop these very masculine traits and I am totally guilty of this like you almost have to like become a bro or like know the lingo like lingo and know the talk to like get yourself into positions of power which is like so fucked up it's almost like you have to abandon aspects of yourself you have to abandon aspects of your femininity to be able to get into to positions of power and that's because we have the system of patriarchy in control of everything so it's like to be a woman in power you almost have to become like a man to get into that power but really are you in a position of power because we're still all then chained to the prison of the patriarchy amen <laughs> i'm like that's hard to add to but i i do agree with you i see a lot of the women um all the, uh, i would probably go as far to say that all the women that I work with directly in some sense and I just sense this and again this is my opinion maybe they don't feel this way that they have to sometimes quote unquote put their foot down or make sure that their opinion is being heard because sometimes it isn't sometimes they bring up a valid point in a meeting and it's talked over or it's moved on to the next talking point and they have to say hold on a second let's go back to my original point and in a very corporate way it's the f you i deserve i deserve a say in this conversation too you know um and they may not necessarily have done that otherwise besides the fact that we know that if we don't we're not going to be heard we are going to be talked over Exactly. I think it's like, and I, and I think it's important to, to like point that out. It, it's like almost like women have to do that. We almost have to have that like F you, we have to sort of harden ourselves a little bit to be heard, which is fucked up because if you had a culture that was exclu- or more inclusive, then it would allow for maybe the quiet person or the more reserved person to still feel safe enough for their voice to be heard and for that person to also be amplified and recognized just because someone is not like extroverted doesn't mean that they now have to be excluded you know so it's like we should have uh, a climate or an environment or a culture which allows for everyone to feel safe enough to show up in the way that they show up and for that to be heard and acknowledged but equally so and I think this is where I differentiate with it not making me angry that I have to do that or that I have to see Um, you know, my fellow female colleagues do that is as much as we've been conditioned by this system, by this patriarchal system, so have men. Um, And it's not to, it it is to say that sometimes making them realize their own um, ignorance to the situation, sometimes in that polite way, saying, um, you know, hey, wait a second, let's go back to my original point. That makes them realize their own errors in their ways of like, oh my gosh, I totally ignored what she just said you know what I mean and takes a step back to think about their own actions but it also shows other women how to speak up for themselves and so me and Agnes were kind of talking about this with a shaved head I was like I don't think shaving my head is a sign of feminism but every time I see a woman with a shaved head it it she's brave to me like she she resembles something that I want but 
by her doing that it gave me a platform to be brave right so and that's kind of how i see it is like maybe me speaking up and standing my ground for myself is giving another woman the opportunity to learn from that and also stand up for herself so it's like i'm not mad that i have to fight this war because to me it's a war worth fighting every time so i'm not angry when i do it because if you go to that war with anger then your result is going to be an angry result right but if you go to it with compassion and understanding that there's a lot of men out there that aren't educated on these issues and their their shield goes up when they feel like we're blaming them right when Mm -hmm. we feel like they're saying like oh it's your fault we're in this patriarchal system you're the issue and that's not it like we're all on the same team fighting for the same thing exactly yeah i think that's yeah i think that's important to acknowledge too and i feel like um that that conversation is being had more like in the last few years versus like the other waves of feminism. So, which I think is really important to that we're, we are becoming more intersectional. We are becoming more inclusive. We're looking at the system of patriarchy instead of just attacking other people who are different from us. So I think that that's, that's huge. So in my uh, government class that I'm taking right now, I am studying healthcare policy and as like unrelated as it sounds, I have like just now made this strong connection between like policy in general and women in politics, because for me studying politics, I like that is, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say I'm a, I'm a minority because I am studying. There are a lot of women that study the same thing as me, but in order to like be successful we do not it like in politics we do not see a lot of female politicians and it literally blows my fucking mind that we have not had a women president like why is that not a thing to add to this i saw this thing not to take it away from you but the one female elective we did have for president hillary clinton when hillary clinton ran for president she was murdered ostracized by all women alike right because of her previous marriage because of her previous uh relationship and uh you know known drama and all of that but the reality is like hillary clinton is a strong ass woman like when you true like and i'm not like on no like political shit no political parties when you think about what it takes to do and to get where hillary clinton has gotten and to go through what she has done to be publicly ostracized because of your husband's decisions not because of anything you did but to have those judgments then pushed on you to put yourself in front of an entire country and say i want a chance at running this country and basically be told that you're too stupid to to me is like when I really read that perspective, I was like, how heartbreaking. Like the one time we did get a woman up there, what did we do? We publicly shamed her because of decisions her husband made. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can also see this uh, with AOC. She is a woman politician and we can see how commonly and normal it is for her to be publicly shamed i i don't remember when this was but recently i was watching her instagram story and she was telling a story about a guy that was like screaming horrible horrible sexual remarks to her as she was going into work one day just like right outside the capitol building just screaming horrible things to her and talking about the clothes that she was wearing and you you can see like why women are like not only is it very very difficult for a woman to be successful in politics but we make it so fucking hard for them 
and just to add some vulgarity to that have you ever seen a man run for president and the world scream that he has a small dick to his face you haven't (laughs) and in real talk you don't see men sexualized and put down and their physical appearance and what they wear and all those horrendous things said to them in the way that they say them to women when they want to tear women down they come at our weight they come at our size they come at our sexuality they don't come at, they don't call us stupid they don't they say we're we're bitches you know what i mean they make it personal and that to me is such a clear distinction between men and women when put in the face of the world when put in positions of power is we you don't tear men down in the same way that you tear women down and to also talk about sexualizing when a man is sexualized is almost used as a compliment or Mm -hmm. you're using that positive like in a positive way versus when a woman is sexualized it's always negative even if they try to make it positive like oh you look so sexy or whatever like it always just ends up being negative and I'm not saying that it's always positive for men. Like there are men that are unjustly sexualized and that is horrible and that should never happen to anybody. But commonly it's usually used in a more positive, like go you for whatever in a sexual way. Um, But yeah, to get back with like studying healthcare, I was um, researching universal healthcare and just the pros and cons. Why doesn't America have universal healthcare? Um, where has it failed in other countries where it has succeeded and a lot of the reason why america does not have universal health care is because we don't have we've never really had a politician that's been successful and like been voted where they've said i'm going to promise this because when candidates didn't obama with obamacare obamacare isn't universal health care though but he was running his campaign on the promise of universal health care, and Obamacare was the result of that. Right, Even but it, it wasn't. So I don't have, like, the exact facts on that, but I did read up on that, like, the difference between Obamacare and universal health care. Um, but in order, like, for America to get the same, like, health care that the United Kingdom has or Canada has, and they do have their flaws, but with the issue that we're at right now with healthcare in America, it's even worse. Like we're just a fucking shit show with our healthcare. And the main reason why we don't is because Americans are not voting for candidates. Candidates don't have enough uh, that have those values, don't have enough funding. And the democratic party is not going to actually pull the string. They're not actually going to do it because it's going to cause so much political backlash because the number of conservatives that are in this country and when we look at conservatives, what is their favorite thing in the whole fucking world? The Constitution. That's all they want to talk about. No, they're guns. They're guns. They're guns and the Constitution. <laughs> but it's like the founding fathers are their daddies. Like, they're so obsessed. Come take them from us. <laughs> they're so obsessed. And when I look at what we'll have to talk about this in a different episode, and I can't wait to discuss it. But the founding fathers were just a bunch of disgusting, horrible, awful plantain owners that, yeah. Plantain? (laughs) Plantain? Plantation owners. (laughs) And And so because of these values, we have all these conservatives that are obsessed with their plantain owners. (laughs) and like when we look at universal health care that is a socialist value and and um 
there is a clear like you can look at the data the data the science women are more likely to have liberal leaning views while men are more likely to have conservative leaning views and I think it just makes sense why we don't have universal health care. And it's because we have this reoccurring trend from the Constitution of being conservative and all of these conservative mindsets that when we do introduce um, more, like I want to say feminine political ideologies, like universal health care, just because more women like prefer it yeah we prefer it it's not ever going to happen because of this issue of feminism and unequal rights in our country i wouldn't even say we prefer it i would say that we were we rely we rely on health care from a very early early age far more than men do right from that from the moment i was 13 14 years old i was going to see an OBGYN to get on birth control or at least talking to a doctor about my period or starting my period from the mo- moment i've started my period right from the from the minute i hit puberty i had to be comfortable spreading my legs in front of a stranger so that they could medically assess whether i was healthy right men don't have to do that they don't unless they choose to right and so not only talk about that but then uh giving birth Right. How, how many women have given birth or, you know, had to seek out medical care that was mandatory, that their life depended on at a very early age where men did not. You know what I mean? Like just statistically, every single woman is going to have a period. Every single not every single woman, but a high percentage of women are going to have childbirth. And so women rely a lot heavier on having something like universal health care and making sure that there's access for all for that than men do. So why would they value it when in their personal experience, they rarely use it? And I think that's a perfect example of why we need more representation of not only women in politics, but people of color in politics. Absolutely. Go ahead. (laughs) No, go ahead, Agnes. (laughs) To talk more about health care, um, I I thought this was really interesting, but after World War II, we started to see a huge shift in healthcare, and that was because Europe, that was just completely obliterated. (laughs) I can't. Agnes is just full. Agnes is full of like all the word bloopers today. Your media editor can turn it into a TikTok list. (laughs) I like looking at Europe they were just completely and totally fucked up after World War II and because of that they had all of these ideas to like obviously rebuild their countries and that's where you start seeing universal health care come into the picture right after World War II because their citizens need it but in America all the soldiers came back home the war ended and we I think it was like our um, economy tripled or something like that in value and we are now like richer or three times richer than we were before and every everybody's thriving everybody's doing great and then that's where we start to see all these like privatized universal health care or privatized health care programs and again that's just like kind of to feed off what you were saying about um women who were doing the men like the male jobs they did all that to pay for their fan you know afford 
the cost of living while their husbands were gone at war and then they finished working and then suddenly all their husbands come home and then pick off where the woman left off and now they get health care and now they get all these benefits because now the economy is so great because of their hard work and what do they get? Nothing. Now, now we look into the sixties and in the sixties, there's a huge trend of like women, like when you, when you look like see movies, um, of the sixties, or you just like look into like what it was like for the woman, they were home, like they took care of the home and they were always home. And it's the honey, I'm home, like whole meme. And it's like they were just shoved back into their home and they weren't allowed to work and they weren't allowed to get anything. And from my own experience, like there is a, there's like a psychological difference between going to work and not, and just getting like whatever paycheck versus like having a career and a company that's actually willing to take care of you. And the women were not getting that with healthcare, with pay, with in like generally, like genuinely caring for the woman, but the woman, the men just came back and basically took it all from them. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. We're talking about this too, as we're talking about the second wave feminism, because these were the conversations that were being held during that time. Um, you know, aside from that, like, you know, uh, rights to work and equal pay and all of that, we were also talking about healthcare and it was actually in the sixties that we got the contraceptive pill was approved by the food and drug administration. So that way women could have more control over their reproductive rights during this time. Also, and I know we've all talked about this as well in the past, but during this time in the 60s, women didn't even have the right to have their own credit cards. They couldn't have any property in their name. They couldn't have a mortgage in their name. Um, Marital rape wasn't even like a thing because just like women were like property of men, essentially. And so during this time, we started having more conversations about like marital rape and women being able to have their own credit cards and bank accounts and all of that. So all of this awareness was kind of coming to the surface during the second wave movement. Um, And then during that time, we were able to, there was a lot of successes that came out of the second wave of feminism, like the passing of the Equal Pay Act in 1963, Title IX in 1972, and then Roe v. Wade in 1973. So huge, huge time for the feminist movement. I think we're we're also today in a huge time of the feminist movement, and that's like, One thing I'm just so proud of our generation for doing is really pushing um, these social rights in general, whether it's been our abortion rights and standing up and fighting for them. Um, Me and Agnes attended the um, protest in Phoenix when they took away our right to safely get an abortion before 15 or after 15 weeks um, of conceiving a child, conceiving a fetus, whatever you want to call it. and the power that was in that rally, the power that was in that those women, the like the the voices that you heard and the stories that you heard, like it was impossible to stand in that crowd as a woman and not feel the power and feel the soul and feel the anger and feel all of that that was coming from all of them saying you will not take this from me. Like there there is there is no such thing as getting rid of abortions. All you're doing is getting rid of safe abortions. And so pushing that movement, pushing the the other social movements that we have, um, 
in terms of equality, I think is going to be huge um, in our upcoming elections and how this country views things going forward. Um, I know Agnes touched on there being a big conservative presence in our country, but in all honesty, I feel in my soul that we far outnumber the hate that's in this country with how much love um, and education we've met in in educating other people, but also educating ourselves. The resources that we have when it comes to vocalizing this stuff on social media, like even from what I've read in books about critical race theory that I didn't know four years ago, and I'm just like, wow, like I was living in the dark and I didn't even know. You have to educate yourself though. You have to like look out for those resources. Yeah. Well, and that's actually, you're touching a little bit on fourth wave feminism, which we're going to get to in just a moment. So, (laughs) yeah. So anyway, to quickly summarize, second wave, uh, second wave, we had a bunch of accomplishments, but things kind of went stagnant in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan came into the White House and there was just a whole bunch of conservative stuff that happened during that time. So that kind of the second wave kind of fizzled out. Third wave feminism begins in the early 1990s and went through the 2010s. And so that movement began when Professor Anita Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee about her accusations of sexual harassment against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. And this just reminds me so much about the whole Brett Kavanaugh hearings, because really it was like the same thing that happened where you have Anita Hill testifying and then Clarence Thomas ends up becoming part of the Supreme Court anyway. So that all happened, which kind of kicked off the third wave of feminism. 1992 was actually dubbed the Year of the Woman because that was the first time that we saw an unprecedented number of women become elected to Congress the first time. So here's where we first start to see women actually being represented in Congress. We're still not even close to where we should be, but that was sort of the first step for us. That's what exactly, exactly what you just said. It's so sad that it took that long. Exactly. Yeah. And especially like talking about like how the first wave of feminism started in what was it? What was it like 18 like the 1840? Yeah. 1848. I mean, for it to be that long. I mean, yeah, like almost 200 years. And I'm going to quote from The Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker, one of my favorite books about the decline of violence um, throughout history. Statistically, the more women that you have in positions of power in politics, running a government, the lead the less violent you are as a society the less likely you are to go to war the less likely you are to have violent induced death yeah yeah that was a great episode when we talked about that book um i forget which number that episode was if anyone wants to go back and listen to it it was the last episode we had jessica on so you have to scroll back and look for it but we talked a lot about that So this next wave or this third wave of feminism, we also started to embrace the spirit of rebellion instead of reform. So a lot of third wave feminists were encouraged to express their sexuality, express their individuality. Um, You see that in like a lot of music and like punk rock culture in like the early 2000s. Um, Third wave feminism also sought to be more inclusive. So there was more conversations happening about race and gender. Um, there's a scholar and theorist, Kimberly Crenshaw, and she developed the concept of intersectionality or how different types of oppression based on race, class, gender, etc., how it can all overlap. And so that was a conversation that was starting to be held. Um, so some of the key issues that they were focusing on was intersectionality, was continuing the right for reproductive rights, um, individual empowerment, Um, fighting back uh, with violence against women, and then also helping women with sexual liberation. So 
that was kind of the third wave. And then we also had kind of at the end of the third wave was where we started to have like the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, um, the rising popularity of gender studies, trans rights, and increasing focus on the need for comprehensive social reform so that we could have true gender equality. So that was kind of third wave feminism. And then then that kind of like merged into fourth wave. But some people say that fourth wave was really just like a continuation of the third wave. So my understanding of fourth wave feminism, and everyone kind of has like a different understanding, but based on like the research I was doing, it supposedly started like the 2010s all the way up to the present moment, kind of where we are now. And sort of what's different between third wave feminism and fourth wave feminism is that third wave feminism was very steeped in academia. And it was a lot of like very organized coalitions and groups that were fighting for women's rights. Where now with the fourth wave, it's much less formal. It's not as steeped in academia. And it actually has a huge prominence on the internet and social media. So fourth wave feminism is sort of like where you have more small groups of people, individuals like us having conversations, conversations taking place on social media. You see um, groups on social media. You see a lot of things starting there on that platform. So that's kind of like, it's sort of, I guess, t- technology kind of came in. And so that was one of the key differences with with the fourth wave, which we're in right now. Are you guys familiar at all with the term intersectionality? Have you heard of that? No. What does that break down into? Okay. Because I touched on it just a second ago. Um, So yeah, intersectionality or intersectionality is looking at like the types of oppression, how you can have people that are discriminated um, based on their race, based on their gender, ba- based on their like physical and mental abilities. Um, and so like first wave feminism where it was like trying to get basic like legal rights for women and trying to get the, the right to vote, that was like a very one size fits all. Um, it, and it was kind of geared more towards like white middle class women. So intersectionality would like instead if we were looking at like the right to vote, intersectionality would go, okay, we want to have women, we want women to have the right to vote, but we also have to acknowledge how women of different classes, women of different races, um, how it would be harder for women to be able to vote. So like women could vote, but black women still were facing like racist laws in the South and different laws and segregation that were preventing them from even being able to get to the polls anyway. So even though on paper they had the right to vote, there were still other laws that were that were preventing them from being able to vote. So intersectionality looks at that and recognizes that we might all have some of the similar problems. We might have certain problems, but we all have different barriers to climb over to like get to a solution. So I think it's a more nuanced ways, um, or it's a new, it's a more nuanced lens when looking at oppression and how to deal with it. So oh, absolutely, ca- I think yeah, it's, and- a, it's it's really important as well because we tend to get stuck in our own mindsets and our own perspectives, and so it's easy as any woman to sit here and be like, "Oh, I'm affected this way." by the lack of without ever considering that someone else is affected in the same way but even more so because of their predicament or because of a situation that they had no control over such as gender sexuality uh, or the color of your skin yeah exactly so some of the things that fourth wave feminists are focused on are intersectionality. So I'm actually just going to read off of some notes from an article, some articles that I found in all my articles that I researched and all the, all the sources are linked in the show notes if anybody wants to dive into that. 
So intersectionality. So third waivers emphasize the concept of intersectionality, and many fourth wave feminists are working on expanding this. The fight for social justice and gender equality is more significant when women of color and the layers of oppression that women experience are part of the conversation. Violence against women is more prevalent and extreme in combination with other modes of oppression like class, race, and sexual identity. And then uh, another kind of key focus of fourth wave feminism is that most of the wave models of feminism have been rooted in the Western world. Feminist movements globally were often less emphasized in public and academic discussions in the West. But fourth wave feminism seeks to address this, especially in its inclusion of invoices from historically marginalized and oppressed groups struggling under the patriarchy. Fourth wave feminism also focuses on solidarity. So celebrating solidarity across different ages, races, creeds, and gender identities. As with the third wave, most fourth wave feminists also consider capitalism, particularly in its neoliberal stain, as a source and magnifier of oppression. And then also decentralization. So the internet, as we were talking about before, has now allowed new avenues of organization and activism. The internet now makes it possible to publicly call out influential figures. It offers opportunities for disempowered women to seek redress and find empowerment. And the fourth wave of feminism has brought to light cases of sexual violence influenced by men in politics, business, entertainment, and news medias. So the fourth wave of feminism, it's relatively difficult to define. And I think that's why so many people are like, maybe we're like at the tail end of third wave or we're a continuation of third wave and why it's so hard to really like pinpoint. Um, There's a lot of people arguing it's just continuation and that the emergence of the Internet has certainly led to kind of a whole new brand of social media fueled activism. And then we talked a little bit when we were talking about third wave, um, Tarana Burke in 2007, when she started the Me Too movement, that really took off in 2017 in the wake of the revelations around the sexual misconduct of the influential film producer Harvey Weinstein. So fourth wave feminists were turning a lot of our attention to the systems that allow this misconduct to continue to occur. Um, And then kind of like early movements in the feminist cause, we're kind of continuing to grapple with the concept of intersectionality, and we're trying to make the movement much more inclusive um, and representative of all people, regardless of sexuality, race, class, and gender. So I kind of want to go back a little bit to something we were talking about earlier, Jessica, you and I were kind of going back and forth on this, but how in the past... Some of the feminist movements have been very geared towards like fuck men, you know, and men are the problem. And I think now with fourth wave feminism, we are starting to look more at like the patriarchy and capitalism. We're looking at all these other systems and more of, I hate using the word attack, but kind of like trying to hold those systems accountable and recognizing that, you know, yes, men have perpetrated a lot of violence towards women, but also under the system of patriarchy, under capitalism, all of us are victims of that. And I think as we kind of saw, even backing up to first wave feminism, you had this split happening where it was trying to get the right to vote. But then basically, marge- like black women and Asian women and Latina women all kind of got pushed to the curb and the focus became helping white middle class women get the right to vote. So we keep seeing these like splits 
where it's like people kind of pitted against each other trying to get power. And I feel like what's so cool now is that we're recognizing that when when we help another group of people that might look different from me, that might come from a different background from as me, when I help that person be able to um, become more centered, when I help that person to be able to have more power, it's not taking power away from me. When we elevate other people, it's elevating all of us. No, exactly. Um, and the direct appliance in my life when it comes to it might sound cliche, but in dating men, like I pride myself on teaching men that this societal norm that is pushed on them to be a provider and to be someone that is always secure and always protective and is not realistic. And it's not what they inherently want either, as much as they may think that they want that because that's what society is telling them. When I approach a man and I say, hey, I would like to go on a date with you. He's taken back. Literally, there's never been one time where the man has been like, are what? Like they're always just they're always just shocked that I'm asking a man on a date and that with that, I am willing to pay like I'm willing to take a guy out on a date and financially pay for that experience because it's something that I want to do and that to me is a quality is breaking down those norms not only in myself not only in what society has taught me that as a woman I should expect out of a heterosexual straight relationship but what is expected out of them too right it's like they don't always have to be the financial fronter in every situation um that being said they're also allowed to be emotionally vulnerable right and that it is not only healthy but it's the expectation that you are um, empathetic with yourself enough to communicate your emotions in a respectful manner right to be a feminist does not make you against men it makes you all on the same page you know it's acknowledging that there's a lot of this world that is very dangerous and very scary for women to have to go through that men will never have to experience because of who they are and what they represent but vice versa as women understanding that there's a lot that men are also going to experience and go through that we will never understand um, and we will never be able to understand because we don't live their experience and acknowledging both those things makes it a lot easier for men to approach feminism without the anger right without placing blame on them or saying that it's their fault that this world is like this because that's not the case it's not the world's fault it's not men's fault it's the system of which has been built and we have all been placed in and told to survive right so we have to make it a place everyone wants to live in not just survive in Mm, and that includes yeah me and Agnes talk a lot about that like there's a lot of amazing men out there and um, Agnes and her relationship has taught me so much about like healthy expectations for others that aren't gender-based, right? Removing those gender norms from a relationship um, and allowing someone to be their authentic self is so, so beautiful on an individual level. The way that Agnes and her husband allow each other to be authentic towards each other without the expectations of what society is telling them to be, um, you get the opportunity to see each person grow in a very authentic way. You're so kind. <laughs> I think that's so beautifully said, Jessica. And I love that too, how you're how you mentioned like helping individuals or like creating this environment where individuals are able to be their full and authentic self 
And we're kind of, I think, again, this is sort of like fourth wave feminism. Like we're kind of trying to get rid of the binary, right? Like, oh, I'm a woman. I'm a woman. Therefore, I am X, Y, and Z. I, that, you know, I take on these characteristics. I take on these roles. This is a man. So he takes on these roles, these characteristics. He can show these emotions, but not those emotions. Like we're kind of like deconstructing all of that and recognizing that we're all humans. We all have you know, we all have like this, we all share the same emotions. There's certain things that we share that's just part of being human. And then because of the different constructs and systems we've built, we also have different experiences. We have some experiences that are similar and some experiences that are different. And I love how we're looking at all of that. And we're all kind of like working together in coalition. It's not now like, you know, you can have someone that's a feminist, um, but then st- can work to fight oppression um, against like marginalized communities and fight a- oppression against, um, you know, black people. And so I love how there's this like crossing back and forth of all the different movements. I think it's like a really interesting point and, and not to sidetrack here at all. It just kind of popped into my head. We have to acknowledge too that not all women want these rights for themselves. And this is something I actually talked to with my friend um, from college, Shri. And Shri comes um, from India. He's a foreign exchange student. But in India, it is the cultural norm. And we're talking majority here, 80 plus percent um, for arranged marriages to take place for eighty over 80 percent of um, Indian na- Indian nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, partake in an arranged marriage. And that culturally in Western culture is like, what? Like, you're (laughs) going to do what? You know what I mean? Like, it's just so night and day. And, you know, as a woman, I can't even imagine someone being like, nope, this is who you're going to marry. You have no say in it. Right. But that is a cultural norm that majority of women in India would not want to change and would not go against if they were given the opportunity to. Right. And there is that intersectionality of understanding that as a woman, I believe in as much of their right to choose Uh, arranged marriage as I do for myself to not choose it. Absolutely. And I think that 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 kind of goes a little bit into, you know, is it our place as a country to go into other countries and tell them what they should or shouldn't be doing? Like culturally, I think. Um, I think it's such a it's that's such a hard conversation. It's so interesting. It's it is. And it's so, a tricky one. I already yeah. see where both our heads are going of I, like the awful atrocities that take place in the Middle East to arrange marriage in India to not having the right to vote. You know, it's like there's such a spectrum of like, no, that's wrong. Wait, but if you put it in this perspective, how much say do you get in it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really tough. Um, I actually have a friend that he is in an arranged marriage and he like, so I've known him for a really, really long time. Like we went to school together and you know, I would ask him about, or could we talk about like our dating lives and stuff? And he wouldn't really date. And he was like, Oh, well, you know, one day my parents are going to find a wife for me. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I was like, are you okay with that? And he was like, yeah, of course. Like that's how it is in my country. That's how it is in my culture. Like my parents, like my parents, gave birth to me. They raised me. Like I love them. They love me. I trust them. Like they want the best for me. And I, and I trust that they do want the best for me. So I like, I'm happy that they are going to choose who they know is going to be the best match for me. And he was like, he like thought it was fantastic for him. It was like, cool. Like, I don't even have to worry about this. I can focus on school. I can focus on all these other things. And when the time is right, my parents are going to find my match and awesome. And then we'll get married. And that's exactly what happened. And they're married and they have kids now and they are so happy together. 
And it's like, you know what? I fully support that. <laughs> Aw, that's really sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have heard the same thing from my peers. Um, and so it's, I mean, Shri, I was like, Shri, and he's just always said, he's like, my parents were two people who never should have been together. And I can <laughs> equally see how that could happen. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sitting here imagining my parents picking my future husband. And I'm like, oh, hell oh, no. Like, same. I love my parents. And I know both my parents have only the best intentions for me. And they love me unconditionally and i still would not trust one percent of what they had to say when it came to the person i had to spend the rest of my life with i wouldn't i just couldn't like no (laughs) yeah you know what this is this is so funny like i just made this connection now but i was thinking yesterday about the whole thing of like the rugged individual like we have that rugged individual culture here in the united states And I feel like we're not as connect, like we're not as communal as other countries and other cultures are. And like, I feel kind of resentful about that. Like that rugged individuality that we have, I think we've really lost connection and we've lost community. Um, But I also think that that's like a survival tactic that we've had to adapt because of our culture. I think, especially as women, like we've been so subjected to violence. And so becoming a rugged individual is almost like a you almost have to to protect yourself and and stay safe in an unsafe culture and an unsafe environment. In an unsafe community. Yes. And and that's the big point here is that we don't have communities that we can exist in safely. Exactly. And I feel like if you have a culture where people feel more interconnected with one another, where people feel like I can be connected with my community and I'm still going to have a sense of autonomy because of the mutual respect of boundaries and mutual respect for hum- for everyone's humanity, I could see where in, in communities like that, someone would be like, hey, I trust my parents to make that decision for me to help or help me with selecting a life partner because they feel more interconnected and they feel respected and they feel safe. And I just don't feel like we have that inter, that interconnectedness and that safety in our Western culture right now. Yeah. And I would, in my personal experience, when it comes to community as well, I found that my communities, plural, reside in many different areas and they each serve me in a very different way, but none of those communities are connected. And I think that in a sense is kind of what you're saying is like one community that I have an outlet for is jujitsu, right? That community is very, very highly conservative, very, very like second amendment like my guns like just that kind of scene right and then i have a community of spiritualists right like you agnes um some of my other peers where we can just have these super in-depth spiritual conversations and like those two things don't really mix like i probably wouldn't bring spirituality talk into jujitsu unless i was prompted to (laughs) you know um and hopefully that is getting across like the point of uh I think our time of community is coming. You know what I mean? I I think it's exactly what you said, Margaret. I think we are in a wave that is recognizing that intersectionality of like everyone, like different is beautiful. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like different has a purpose and it has a place. And when we say we want equality for all, it doesn't mean that we want all of us to be exactly the same and all have the same exact things. We simply want um, an equal place where everyone can feel safe and know that they have a choice um, for themselves. 
Absolutely. And I think it's also recognizing that equality, like working towards equality for one group is not going to take away equality from you. Because I think there's so much of that in our culture. Well, if this person gets this thing, this resource, that means that that resource is getting taken away from me. And so I think we're trying to deconstruct from that mindset of, well, if this person's getting something, then I now am losing something, you know? And honestly, in like full transparency, sometimes it does. Like if you want to be a hateful human being and you think for some reason as a woman, I don't have the right to choose whether I have a child or not and you want to take away my right from abortion, then no, I disagree with you. I don't think you should be able to do that, mm-hmm. you know? And that and that, that's just, that's when you decide that sometimes people aren't going to be in your community or make it a safe one, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, and that's such a big thing with like religious freedom, right? It's like, Hey, everyone should have the freedom to practice whatever religion they want, but you don't have the freedom to dictate like what kind of like religious background I'm a part of or like what kind of religion I adhere to. Yeah. And that's another huge thing. I would love to see the actual separation of church and state in this country because that hasn't happened. And it like, I don't see it happening anytime soon, but it absolutely needs to. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of actually really quick, um, so I got like a newsletter from my son's school out here in Texas for like some like charity food drive that we're doing next month. And then we're like, they're like partnering up with like this Christian organization. I'm like, um, can you, can they do that? Can like a public school be like partnering up with a Christian organization next month? Like that is so weird to me. Yeah, I would be um, wondering where all those, those food donations are going. Right? <laughs> no, just like, are you going to hand them out to like church community members? Or are you actually going to serve the public with those donations? Not yeah. the church public, but the public. Yeah. Because I don't know. I know one person in our family who during the holidays would love to go to all the different churches in the area. I'm, no, I won't say which family member it is. You guys can guess. <laughs> <laughs> And get all the Thanksgiving gift boxes and would keep the extra 12 turkeys that they collected that were meant for the homeless in their freezer so that they had turkey year round. (laughs) So I'm just saying if it's going to a church, it may not necessarily be charitable. (laughs) That's the King family for you. (laughs) Oh, God. I still got them too. <laughs> uh, anyways, is there anything else that you guys want to add to this? Is there anything you want to add to it? <laughs> I'm ready for the gratitude prompt, guys. <laughs> All right, let's do it. What are you grateful, Agnes, for this to be over? <laughs> <I'm-> <laughs> oh, God. Margaret, what are you grateful for? Oh, fine. Put it all on me. Um, what am I grateful for? I am grateful for a day off. I feel like I say that like every episode. I'm like, it's my day off. I'm so grateful. (laughs) As you should. No. Okay. So uh, wait, I'll go further. I'm grateful it's my day off, but I'm also grateful that I've been like in bed all day. Y'all know how like rare that is for me Uh, to like have a day to just lay in bed and like watch TV. So so nice. Amazing. (laughs) Me and Agnes Agnes will like sleep until seven and be like, we slept in. Dude, I wish when I'm a fucking bartender at seven o'clock, it's like I've gotten like three hours of sleep at that point. Oh. <laughs> no, we wake up at five o'clock every morning. It's awful. Oh, I like seeing your beautiful face every morning in the kitchen. Aww. We just like give each other this look like give me 20 minutes before you talk to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Jessica, what are you grateful for today? 
jujitsu. Did it turn your mood around today? Kinda, like fifty percent. I'm still <laughs> pissed off, but I still don't know it what. <laughs> I figure it out. I'll let you guys know. Agnes, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for coffee. <laughs> Speaking of coffee, tell them about it. Oh my god. Okay, this is like a whole other thing. So one of the attorneys at my firm. His, I think his dad is from like old money, like they rich, rich. And his dad goes to like Brazil all the time, I guess. And he gets this coffee. It's called Jacu coffee or something like J-A-C-U, Jacu. Sounds French. And, and it's, okay, so it's like a Jacu bird that eats the bean digest it and shits it out i'm telling you what <laughs> shit okay, coffee this is a poop co- and i poop heard coffee? about it during covid it's poop coffee and but i like i literally heard about this being like a new thing in the coffee community during covid so when she, as soon as she said bird poop coffee i was like i know what you're talking about like i literally i know this is a thing but what she, like she's probably about to say this but each bag is like worth an Okay, I don't I don't know the exact translation, but from what I found on the internet, it's about a thousand dollars for like a bat like like ten cups or whatever. Oh my god. Yeah. So the attorney he he's like, Yeah, my dad goes to Brazil all the time and gets his coffee and and because it's processed through the bird, it has like special enzymes and it's supposed to be like super good for you. And the attorney just has like fucking sh- a shit ton of bags just sitting in his freezer. So he gave me, he had like half a bag in like one of the freezers at our office and just gave it to me. I, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> so I took it home and we made a cup of coffee and I was so nervous. It was going to taste gross. Were your coworkers said- yeah. One of my coworkers was like, oh my God, he gave it to me once and it tasted like shit. It was so gross. So I was so scared to taste it. And I took a sip and oh my God, Margaret. It was so good. Like, it was, oh, it was a squid. <laughs> it was literally so smooth. Like, I've never, like, imagine coffee without any bitterness, but, like, full coffee flavor. It, it tasted like nitro coffee, but it wasn't. Like, we tried it with oat milk, and we tried it without the oat milk, like, just pre-bred coffee. It was almost exactly the same. Like, if there wasn't texture involved, you wouldn't have been able to tell the taste difference. Yeah, and we just brewed it with, like, a regular coffee maker. We didn't do anything special with it. It was just, like, a regular pot of coffee. And it had – I feel like it had the perfect, like, um, like acidic-y or, like, like citrus or, like, fruity tang to it. But it was not bitter at all. So, like, when you drink it, it was just, like, there's – no other way to describe it. I'm not saying we're coffee gurus or anything, but we have been balling out on our coffee brands lately. <laughs> and this compared, this rated. So if you ever wanted to try bird poop coffee, we recommend. <laughs> I don't think I would ever pay, pay full price for it unless I like went and got it local. But I guess that's like the local price of it. Um, and it's only sold in Brazil. So if you ever get your hands on Jacku coffee, especially if it's free, take it. I probably wouldn't be telling uh, the airport about it, though, because you got to pay taxes on it. It sounds like it hits that minimum. Imports. You know you got to pay money on your imports. Ugh, that's annoying. Yeah, I let the rich people do that. Keep yeah. getting it from your lawyer friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I'm grateful for that today. Bird poop coffee. <laughs>
we believe in the power of taking even one minute a day to breathe and find gratitude in the little things. Wherever you are, if you are able, close your eyes, take a deep breath in and out, and reflect on something that you are grateful for today. We are so honored that you could join us in this discussion today, and we hope you have a beautiful week. If you enjoyed today's Unrefined Woman podcast episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. To check out other episodes, please visit our website at unrefinedwoman.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. To stay in the loop and receive access to additional content, please follow us on TikTok, username Unrefined Woman, and on Instagram at Unrefined Woman Podcasts. Special thanks to Walter Birdsong for the album cover, Margaret Rainey for our podcast music, Andrew Cioni for our gratitude prompt music, and Sean Butcher for editing and production. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Can you imagine if you forgot about Moses? And then you can get like a review from your haters talking about how, based on traumatic experiences, you guys are... I showed her the bad review we got. (laughs) Yeah, we got a one-star review on Apple. We're apparently deranged. (laughs) I know. I read it, and I was like, hey, if you got haters, that means you got lovers. Like, (laughs) like, that's what I mean. I was like, all haters on the internet are fans. Right? I'm like, are you even, like, legit unless you start getting haters? I mean, for me, for, for me, like, when you get, like, hate mail or, like, a shitty comment, it's almost like wow like I feel so special like you literally took time out of your day to like listen to us to get like all fired up like you spent emotional energy like getting angry about whatever we said and then you like took the time to like write out a whole comment on Apple Podcasts like wow I'm feeling so special right now